Turn with me this morning to James chapter 5. We're going to read verses 13 through 18, and we're going to consider these verses together. If you're visiting with us, we've preached, uh, we've been preaching through this letter, and we are coming to the very end. So there will be this morning's sermon and one more in the last couple of verses as James brings the letter to a close. Uh, we are in the concluding remarks, but uh, we, we have seen and learned a lot from this letter, and so uh, I hope that you're able to sort of jump in with us and join in and follow along. <clears throat> and if you're here this morning and you love uh, passages with a little bit of controversy, then you're uh, in for a treat. Uh, this is a passage that is probably, it, it, it's definitely one of, if not the most difficult passage in the book of James for sure. Uh, it is a passage with a lot of different things going on in it, things that are mentioned, theological themes that come up. And quite frankly, there is a great deal of uh, controversial practice and I think theological error that uh, is present in the church as a result of a misunderstanding and a misapplication of some of what is found in these verses. And so, I, not that I have all of the answers for them, but I, I do hope that we can look together and glean some truth and some clarity and some help and encouragement from them this morning. James chapter 5, we're going to begin in verse 13. And before we read God's word, let's pray and ask him to help us in that endeavor. Oh God, we need you. Lord, we want to worship you in the way that we read and study. And so we need you to help us fix our minds upon Christ, our Savior, to depend upon your spirit, to open and transform us, to bless us and grant us wisdom and knowledge and understanding. And Father, we pray for those things this morning. So now as we turn to your word, even in our sin and imperfection, we pray that you would help us to see, to glean truth and uh, righteousness from it. So plant it deep within us that we might bear fruit for Christ's sake in his name. Amen. James chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. He says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave its rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Amen. Uh, difficult passage, but I think we're going to be able to do some good with it and find some uh, help and truth from it. James, if you remember, in all of this letter has been dealing with and trying to help us in understanding what are the characteristics of true Christianity and living faith in Jesus Christ. And he has set true Christianity and living faith over against false Christianity that is characterized by dead faith in Jesus Christ. Not that it is really faith at all, but it is a perceived faith. It is an expressed faith. It is a, uh, a supposed faith, but it is dead faith. It is faith apart from works. It is those that are hearers only of the word. 
and not doers. And so it is faith that is not saving faith. And what he's going to do in chapter 5, as we've already seen to some degree, but then especially in these very final concluding marks, both this week, this week and next, he's going to revisit some of the main themes that he has already dealt with. He's not going to deal with all of them, but what he's going to do is, like any good speaker or writer, he is going to revisit the most important details of his argument so as to strengthen his argument and to remind his people of the things he wants them to understand the most in light of a lengthy sermon or talk or letter, okay? So he's going to revisit some. For example, in chapter 1, if you remember, he begins his letter by calling the true Christian who is in the midst of suffering and trial to endure them patiently, to count it all joy in the midst of suffering. And then if you notice here again, what in verse 13? Is anyone among you suffering? So the the issue of suffering is going to reappear right off the outset. Then in chapter 3, he dealt with the taming of the tongue and how we can use our tongue in teaching and in other uh, capacities in in a way that honors God. In chapter 4, he goes on to deal with our relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ in the context of the body. And so then this morning, he's going to pick those themes back up. He's going to pick up the issue of our language and how that comes up in prayer. Now we can use our words through prayer to honor God and build us up in his church. And then also, like if you look at verse 16, the issue of our relationships to one another is going to come back into focus. He says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed. Right? So, So the issue of Our relationships, the taming of the tongue, using our speech and our language and our lives in a way that honors God, suffering and enduring patiently in the midst of suffering, finding joy in the midst of great suffering. These are all themes that he thinks are important enough to revisit this morning at the very end of this book. In chapters 4 and 5, most recently, he's been dealing with the issue of worldliness, if you remember. It's one of the main themes that he set out in chapter 1 he's going to deal with, and that was the issue of worldliness. That God's people are called to be different. That the church, the body, we are called to be set apart. We are called to be different. Last week, specifically, uh, we learned that true Christians, one expression of this uh, difference from the world is that we are called to express Enduring patience as the expression of our hope for the return of Jesus, right? So he calls us to suffer patiently, uh, to have this patience and to find joy in suffering and to be patient in the midst of suffering. But in the end, he revisits that. And we saw last week specifically that we are called to this patience, this abiding and enduring patience. How? By thinking on the return of Jesus, for, for, for if, we, if we remember that our king is coming quickly, that, that, that the battle is already won, that the promises that God has made for us are ours in and through the person and work of Jesus, and he is coming again, then we are strengthened and encouraged to endure patiently in the midst of trial and suffering. But if last week we saw that the true Christian is called to patience as the expression of their hope for the return of Christ, what we are going to see this week is that true Christians are called to prayer as the expression of their utter dependence upon Christ. So patience, as we patiently await for his return, as we long for and anticipate the coming of our king, and prayer, because prayer is the expression of our utter dependence upon him. And so as we turn to the passage this morning, you'll see that he makes uh, the structure, I think, of this passage, at least for verses 13 to 18, is that there's one generalized 
overarching uh, statement or hypothesis, if you will, that he makes. One clear, uh, uh, totally easy to understand, abiding truth that he's going to make, and that is what he says in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. And is anyone among you cheerful? Let him sing praise. In the most general sense, the main point of the passage is plain and clear. We are called to be people of prayer, people of utter dependence upon God, both in the good times and the bad. So first, first, then most generally, he is going to argue that prayer, we are called to this prayer, this abiding and trusting and living with God, because prayer is a means of grace for the people of God. He calls us to pray. Notice he says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. That's the easy part, isn't it? We're called to pray in the bad times. I would encourage us to think how, how, how often we don't do this. How, how often when we get in the midst of the deepest valleys and struggles and uh, troubling situations in our life that we, we are so prone to look inwardly and to depend upon ourselves. And, and we are so tempted, I think, to not as often as we ought to look outwardly and to depend upon Jesus and to abide with him in prayer. But it seems more evident, I think, to us as sinners, and especially as Christians, that in the midst of the bad times, it's a bit easier for us to understand the calling to pray. For there are times when we suffer to the point where we have nowhere else to turn. There are times when trouble and suffering and valleys come into our life that are so deep and so low and so difficult that we have no way of understanding or comprehending them and we have no, we have no framework by which to get through them and so we simply cry out to Jesus as a, as a last resort, if you will. And, and so I think it is a bit more self-evident that we are called to pray in the bad times. But while it may be obvious, let me tell you that it is a means of grace to pray in the bad times, as obvious as it may seem, because of what God gives us in it. Think about what happens when we pray even when the bad is around us or when the, the, the valley is dark and deep. We learn how much we need Him. We learn ever more to depend upon Him. We are grown in our grace because in depending upon God and suffering and difficulty, we acknowledge our own frailty and inability, don't we? That we cannot fix the situation, that we cannot remedy the illness, that we cannot deal with the problem. And so when we come to God through prayer, it is a humiliation, not in a bad way, but it is a humbling of ourselves and an exalting of God. We acknowledge our own frailty, but also we acknowledge his power and ability in the situation. And in the bad times when we pray, it's a means of grace because it teaches us patience. And we are often sanctified in the process of continued prayer, aren't we? Friends, have you learned more in your life in any other time? Maybe you have. But in the times of difficulty and trouble and struggle. It, it, it seems as though the, the, the deepest and darkest and lowest valleys are the places of greatest learning and growth, aren't they? And, and do you see that, that those things come to us as we abide with God through prayer, as we depend upon him through Christ in prayer, as we approach him by the blood of Christ in prayer? I mean, God doesn't need us to pray. God invites us to pray. God longs for his people to pray. God commands that we pray. God is so interested in our prayer life that he sent Jesus to make access to himself for us in prayer. For without Christ and the sacrifice that was made in God's will and providence, we could not simply come to God and bring our 
problems and our troubles and our anxieties to him. We, we would need an intermediary, but the intermediary for us is Christ, and he's been given because of God's desire that we abide with him. Friends, it's a means of grace in our life where God brings us to a place of understanding who we are and who he is. But that is also the case, and it may seem a bit uh, less self-evident, and that is in the good times. We are called to abide with God through prayer and praise, if you'll see that language there, to sing praise. That's a, a positive prayer, if you will. Let anyone among you who is suffering pray. And then he also says, but are you cheerful? Let him sing praise. Do you see the, he, he's simply using the, the two extremes. He, he is saying that the true Christianity is characterized both in the best of times and in the worst of times by a humble acknowledgement of God's will and his providence and his care and his love for you and your life. And that the expression of that, it comes out in our life through prayer. Where in the bad time we come to God humbly and we tell him what we need and we share our frustrations and our hurts and we depend upon him to solve the things we cannot solve and to be strong in our weakness and all the things that we just talked about. But friends, also in the good times, we are called to look around at the many blessings that we have and to remember that they have come from a gracious and a loving and a kind God. Where when we depend upon him through praise and adoration Worship and prayer, we are brought to a deeper gratitude for what we have, aren't we? Where we pray, God, thank you. Thank you for what you've given me. For I know that had you not given it, I would not have it. When we are brought to a place of abiding prayer in the good times, we are acknowledging again, much like in the bad times, we are acknowledging our own insufficiency and our utter dependence upon God. See, it's easy to acknowledge your insufficiency when you're, in a, when you're in a valley that you can't get out of. But when you look around at how great your life is going and how beautiful your family is and how wonderful and uh, solid your job is and how handsome your husband is, that's how my wife, you know, she looks around and just can't believe it. <laughs> and, and then she's brought to this place of her own insufficiency because she says, I never could have got him on my own. <laughs> I mean, do you, do you understand that in some way it, it's the same? That depending upon God in the times that are bad and on the times that are good, it is, a, it is a way of acknowledging our own insufficiency that I could never have gotten this job. I could not have attained these degrees. I could not have all of these friends and this wonderful fellowship and this church and these blessings in my life had you not graciously and mercifully bestowed them upon me. So you acknowledge the sufficiency and the mercy and the gracious bounty of God for all that you have. And when you do this, when you abide with him in prayer, thanking him for all that you have in the good times, you're also taught it's a means of grace in your life because it leads us to a less inward focus where, where we realize that we could not have attained and so we must have been given. So rather than looking around at all that we have and thinking how successful I am and how gifted I am and how hard I've worked, we look at how pitiful we are and we think about how wonderful God is. And when we do that, it teaches us to look around at opportunities to be a blessing to other people, to give to other people, to be better stewards of all of this grace that God has showered upon us. I think when we abide with God in prayer, we're taught how to be givers. Who am I to withhold from you in your time of need when I am constantly aware 
of God's bountiful gifts in my time of need. Do you see? That we abide with him in prayer in the bad times, sure. But in the good times, do you see what James in the most general sense is calling us to? He says that, listen, true faith, saving faith is faith that prays all the time. Pray without ceasing. Abide with God in the good and in the bad. Trust him. Long for him. Wait upon him. And thank him. And then reflect him. Reflect him to the world. So in the most general sense, prayer, he says, is a means of grace for the people of God. But then what he's going to do is there's going to be two sub points, if you will, in these verses underneath that main heading or that main reality, that main teaching. So if it's a means of grace for the people of God, specifically, he's going to pick up how that functions in two ways. Two specific areas where grace is showered upon us. Grace upon grace is showered upon us as we are faithful to a life of prayer. So the true Christianity, saving faith, is characterized by an abiding life of prayer. And that prayer becomes a means of grace in two specific areas. These are not the only two, but these are the two that he picks up on. The first place, beginning in verse uh, 14 and moving forward, he's going to show us that prayer... And, and faithfully involving oneself in prayer, prayer grows the church in unity. Okay? This is, this is where the text gets a little more difficult. Okay? This is where there is a lot more questions, and I'm going to try to deal with some of them. But in the most general sense, what I want you to see is what he's saying is that one of the graces that God bestows upon his people as they faithfully and fervently pray is that he grows them together in unity. That a faithful prayer life leads to a unified church. Notice what does he say? Is anyone among you sick? Look at verse 14. Does he say go over in the corner and pray really hard by yourself? No. If anyone among you is sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. The power of this group prayer. Then look at verse 16. Therefore, is he talking about doing all of these things alone and by yourself? No. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And then the great truth comes. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working or it avails much. So it teaches us not only to depend upon God, but it teaches us first unity by helping us to learn to depend upon one another. You see that? He commands us to call for the elders. To, 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 in, in situations of dire sickness and dire, we know from the language here, I'm not going to spend enough time to maybe show you all that, but from the language in this text, this is a situation where someone is extremely ill. And so he says, call for the elders of the church and have them join together with you. Have them join together with you, working as one body, one unified body of Christ, praying for this power and working of God in someone's life, this healing. But there are a lot of questions that come from even this very passage. So let's just deal with some of them, and then I'll try to bring about some general truth. A lot of people misunderstand this business about the oil. What does it mean when it says to call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord? Well, one of the questions that people have is they think that oil then is necessary for healing. 
that James intends in this passage somehow to be normative or prescriptive. That if you want to heal somebody, you just go get the holy anointment. You just go get the holy oil. Friends, in short, that is simply not the case, and that is not what James intends to teach here. James has no intention in this passage of being normative or prescriptive beyond the basic prescription that if you are sick, let you pray. Okay? Call for the elders, join together as a body, for one of the means by which God bestows healing and grace is through prayer. But is the oil a necessary part of the prayer? No. Friends, how many other healings do we know of in Scripture where oil was not present? Both by Jesus and by the apostles. Where we are commanded often to pray for people, and we are not commanded in many of those passages to pray and to anoint them with oil. Does that mean that I think that we shouldn't do it? Well, no. I think there are applications where maybe this practice could be practiced and done biblically and faithfully. But the answer to the question, is he intending to say that if you want to heal someone who's sick, just go get the oil? The answer is that's simply not the case. The point is not the power of the oil, but the power of the prayer. The power of God that is working to answer the prayer. So one of the questions is, is it necessary? And closely related to that is the question, is it sacramental? For in these verses, you find the defense for like the Catholic Church's use of what's known like extreme unction or last rites, where they call for a priest to come and anoint one with oil who is on their deathbed and to pray over them in this special sacrament of the church. Is the oil here in this passage sacramental? Well, first and practically, if you understand that the answer to is the oil necessary is no, then if it's not necessary, it certainly can't be sacramental. It can't possess any power. Because if you can have healing with the oil or without the oil, then it cannot be the power resting in the oil. Because what I mean by sacramental is, is there some power that is exhibited and manifest in the presence of the oil? And the answer is no. Also, friends, keep in mind that in the practice of last rites or extreme unction, they are only given to someone who is dying, and they are given by a priest. How much farther could that be from what's going on by James's encouragement here? Well, let's look and see. He says, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. Is this intended to be the last rites of a dead man, or is it the hopeful prayer for healing? It's a a total misunderstanding and misapplication of a basic reading of the text. The intention here is that you would gather together as the body and pray that God would answer and heal and deliver. Secondly, there's no mention of a priest or an intercessor or an intermediary. It is simply the calling upon the elders of the church. The plurality of leaders there to call and gather with you as God has given them charge over you. And so as we depend upon God, it teaches us in some way to depend upon the structures that he has given, the authorities that he's placed over us. But it's not given by some priest over a dead man. It is given with the hope of healing by the elders of the church. It is a prayer that is offered. And the oil that is present is only symbolic of the power of God that is working by the spirit of God. You understand that it's, it's to show being bathed and being washed by God's power. Some, something outside of you is coming to act upon you. So it's, it's a, the symbolism of the oil is, is the only significance of the oil. The oil is not attributed to have done anything in this passage by James, is it? 
What is attributed? Well, let's look at how many times it's said. Anointing him with oil, what? In the name of the Lord. And then when it says it will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. Time and time and time again, even in these few short verses, all of the power to work and to act is attributed to God, not to the person praying and not to the oil that was used. So let's not misunderstand the intention of James here. What is James's point? His point is to pray fervently in community with one another. Now, what about this business? One of the other questions is, what about the business of this prayer of faith that will save the one who uh, is sick and the Lord will raise him up? So does this, is this somehow a guarantee that if we will pray or even pray like this, that healing will come? And if it is, then the teaching is clear, isn't it, that you just need to claim your healing. Friends, claim it. That There's nowhere in the Bible that we're ever told to claim our healing. That's certainly not the point of this passage in this text. Does this text guarantee healing? Absolutely not. Sometimes healing is not part of God's will. There's multiple reasons, but listen, sometimes God's will is that we would suffer, that in the suffering, his strength would abound and our faith would grow. Paul said that he prayed multiple times, three times for deliverance from some suffering. And what did God tell Paul? No. For my strength is made perfect in your suffering. Even in Scripture, we know that it is not always God's will that sickness be obliterated, at least in a temporal sense. Another reason is because James cannot here be teaching a view that is contrary, a view of prayer that is contrary to the view of prayer and the teaching of prayer that Jesus would have had. He cannot contradict Scripture and he cannot contradict Jesus about whom he's speaking. What did Jesus teach us about prayer? When you pray, pray like this. Thy will be done. That's very different from claiming your will. What do you want? I want to be healed. I want to be delivered. So what am I going to do? I'm just going to claim it. I'm going to name it and I'm going to claim it. I'm going to, it's, it's mine in Jesus' name. Friends, let me, let me tell you one of the hardest things that I have to do is as a pastor, and I've had to do over the years, is to spend time with people on their deathbed. And, and I have watched people go to be with Jesus. And it's not an uncommon thing that families want me to pray with them. Friends, I, I'm not sure they always like the prayer that, that I pray. But do you know that I often don't know what to pray other than simply praying that God's will would be done for this person? For is there any greater request to be made? It's never wrong for us to pray that God's will would be done if God's will is for death, if God's will is for life, if his will is for suffering and sickness or for deliverance and restoration. Let us ever pray that God's will would be done. Do you see how far Jesus' view was from claiming your healing? And James is not going to be teaching and purporting another view here in this text that would contradict the view of Jesus. And friends, let's get a little closer to home. All you have to do to understand that that's not what he means is give yourself a little, give a little careful consideration to James's own letter. What he has already said about prayer. Let's go back to chapter four. 
Look at look at verse one, chapter four, verse one. What cause causes quarrels? And what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And then what does he say? You do not have because you do not ask. That is God. And look at what he says in verse 3. You ask, but you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Do you see that James has already dealt with the issue of prayer and whether or not we get the things that we pray for? What's James's, what's James's argument and what's James's point? That as we grow in grace and as we grow in faith and as we depend upon God through prayer, our desires become what he desires for us. And that the reason we ask and do not get is because we ask according to the desires of our heart and not according to the desires of God's heart. And so the prayer that James is encouraging us to pray is, Thy will be done. And his point is that if we pray according to God's will for anyone, and God's will is that they would be delivered, friends, his point is not about whether or not God will, but that God can. That if according to God's will someone is to be healed, friends, James's point is that they will indeed be healed. For pray, and when you do, God will answer. And when God answers, healing comes. Do do you see? A careful consideration of this letter doesn't allow for this type of theological buffoonery, ignorance to to, to claim your healing. It's nowhere taught in Scripture. Let, Let me encourage you this morning. If you're suffering, pray that God's will would be done in your life. Not my will, but thine be done. What about the statement when it says, if he has committed any sins, they will be forgiven him, and we've, we've got to move on. Notice, notice it says there, uh, it's talking about praying over sickness, but then it seems to bring in to this physical infirmity. It, it brings in a deliverance also from spiritual infirmity, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. This is actually the most difficult part of the text to deal with, and I don't have all the answers for it. But one of the questions is, does this mean that sin has necessarily caused the sickness? So that if you alleviate the sickness, then the sin is alleviated also, or vice versa. That because the sin has caused the sickness, if you, know, if you just get rid of the sin, then the sickness is gone as well. Friends, that, 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 it, it, it's possible, because we know from Scripture that sometimes uh, people are infirmed on account of their sin, but it's not always the case. Just because you're sick and suffering, it doesn't mean that you're the, because you've been entrenched in sin in your life and that you've done something to make God angry. So he's not dealing with you out of anger. That's not necessarily the case. Does this mean that physical healing is always accompanied by spiritual healing? In other words, that if you can just heal the sickness, then you can heal your soul as well? No. Keep in mind, as with many of the other things that we've already seen up to this point, James is not intending to be normative. A lot of what he's saying here, how do we know that? Why? People, are people always healed? No. He says that they will be. He, people are not always healed. God's will is not always for restoration. Healings are not always accompanied by oil, sometimes. Healings and prayers of healings are not always accompanied by the elders of the church, sometimes. Do, do you see that his point is not to give you a prescription for how to bring about a healing? <laughs> that is not the point. What is his point then? Well, I think his point is to create a necessary connection between the occasion of physical and spiritual healing 
not so much the occasion as it is to make a necessary correlation between the power of God to do both. Let, let me, in other words, I do not think that James here intends to tell us when physical and spiritual healing come, but from where physical and spiritual healing come, and that is that they come from God, so that you seek them from him in prayer, that he is sufficient both to heal physically and spiritually. And that, friends, reconciles with the rest of the testimony of Scripture, doesn't it? For even in Mark that we preached through, if you're with us, time and again we saw Jesus healing. Sometimes, friends, those healings were brought with be healed physically and spiritually. Be healed and your sins are forgiven. It wasn't always the case. But the point is not that that's necessarily how it's going to happen or when it's going to happen, but that God is sufficient to do both. Secondly, and I think maybe rightly so, many scholars point to the relationship between our physical and our spiritual sickness. That is to say that it is often in the midst of physical sickness and suffering that we are the most mindful of our spiritual sickness and suffering. And so, many see James speaking about God's use of physical infirmity to bring about an awareness of our own spiritual infirmity and also to bring about repentance from sin which would seem to make sense if, if, if allowing us to be physically infirmed helps us to be more aware not only of our physical weakness but also of our spiritual infirmity, then it helps God by an act of his grace to bring about repentance in our lives and in our hearts. And when we repent, sins are forgiven. And so that seems to go well with what they're saying here. I'm not 100% sure about all those verses, but I can tell you, at least in short, that his point is, if you have need... Bring them to God who is sufficient to deal with them. So it teaches us, um, let me find my place here because I'm way down. It teaches us first to depend upon one another, but then secondly and quickly it teaches us to forgive one another. What does he say in verse 16? He also brings about unity because when we pray, not only by calling the elders and anointing with oil and praying for one another, we are called to pray with one another. Therefore, he says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed. Right? That, that reconciliation and restoration might be brought. For the prayers of these righteous have great power as they are working. This doesn't mean that you need to go to confession with a priest. Again, that's a misapplication of what he's saying. It says, no, 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 it says, pray by going to one another to confess your sins. If, if a brother has wronged you, if you've committed a sin against him, if he has committed a sin against you, if there's been a rift in your relationship inside the body of Christ, go to one another. And you know the way that healing is sought and brought? Through prayer depending upon God to heal the severed relationship. So do you see that one of the ways it's a means of grace from God in the lives of his people is that it brings about the unity of the church. We are called to pray with one another, and we are called to pray for one another. James is saying that true Christianity is characterized by a community of faith, not individuals with Jesus. You know, I tell people all the time, I don't need the church. Friends, the, the, scripture, the scripture says that you do. Just me and Jesus. I've got a Bible. I can just be at home. It's just me and me and Jesus. Friends, we were created by God to exist in a community together. And when we pray in this community, we are strengthened and unified and built up for faith and good works. Let's face it. Can you really say that you love God if you don't love his people? Can you really say that you trust God if you have no trust in his people? Can you say that you love him 
or that you need him or that you truly depend upon him when you do not need or love or depend upon those for whom he died, those in whom his spirit rests and those through whom his power is manifest. Can you say that? And and the answer is no. The scripture says that for those who love God, a love for his people is evident and sure. And friends, isn't one of the best ways that we can express our love for and dependence upon God to show a genuine need and love and dependence for and upon his people? It is. So it grows us together in unity. And then finally and briefly, the last couple of verses there, he gives the illustration of Elijah because I, I think he intends to show us that when we When we pray and when we abide with God in prayer, both in the good times and the bad, God not only unifies the church, but he grows the church in its faith. It grows the church in its faith. Like he gives this example to of Elijah. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He's pointing, Elijah was insufficient. Elijah was frail. Elijah was prone to wander. Elijah was full of sin. But he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Wow. Elijah changed the course of nature according to God's will through prayer. This is the same language that we see elsewhere in the New Testament, that if you had but the, the, the faith of a mustard seed, you could say to that mountain to be moved and it would be moved. You could change the course of nature and of human history through abiding with God in prayer, depending upon him and his power. This is what Elijah did. And then look, after three years and six months, with no rain on the earth, God sought to bring rain again, and he used Elijah, who it says, Then he again prayed, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Friends, what do you think Elijah learned from that experience? Why does it say he had a nature like ours? I promise you, he had a better understanding of God's power and a greater trust in that power after he prayed and it did not rain according to his prayer and then he prayed and then brought rain when God used Elijah through prayer to change the course of nature and human history to to, to break in and act and move I can assure you that Elijah was never the same it changed him forever you see that as we depend upon God in prayer we learn how present he is we learn how good he is And we learn how powerful he is. Friends, because he answers prayer. The prayer of the righteous avails much. It has great power as it is working. And so he teaches us these things through prayer. We are sanctified into the image of Christ through prayer. We are grown in our faith, strengthened to believe, and spurred on in obedience through prayer. And we are brought together as the body of Christ insofar as we pray for and with one another. Friends, let us be people of prayer. Let us depend upon God in prayer. And let the power of God be manifest insofar as we ask for it through prayer. Let's pray. God, we acknowledge this morning then that we do not have any right to come to you in prayer. It's a staggering thing to realize that you don't need us to pray. You don't benefit in any way. You're not moved along by our prayers. 
that in our prayers we cannot make you aware of anything you did not know and even plan. Uh, that in our prayers uh, you, you are not informed or um, moved. God, but thank you that by prayer you call us to be a part of your work. You, you command us to depend upon you in prayer because it is through prayer that you bestow grace upon us or that you bind us together as we pray. You sanctify us and give us patience as we pray. You spur us on to faith and obedience and good works by giving us hope when we pray. You display your power, working in and through your people when we pray. God, help us to see and understand these things so that we would be given to prayer. God, I confess to you this morning that I do not pray nearly enough. I pray that you would forgive me and that you would encourage me to pray all the more, to know the power of prayer. And God, I pray that as we pray more, all the more, as we pray without ceasing, that your grace would be abounding and abundant in our lives. God, speak to us and work through us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.